Welcome once again to Radio In Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science Community here on WCOMLP Chapel Hill in Carborough. This is Ernie Hood. I am a freelance science writer, and each week here on the program, we bring you cutting-edge information about what's going on in science here in the Triangle, one of the world's leading hubs of scientific research, development, and innovation. You can email us at radioinvivo at earthlink.net, and you can access a full archive of our hundreds of past programs over the past 14 years at radioinvivo.net. The Burroughs Welcome Fund is a Golden Voices underwriter here on WCOM and Radio In Vivo. The Burroughs Welcome Fund supports excellence in science education across North Carolina. The fund believes that providing students with engaging and interactive curriculum helps to spark curiosity for careers in science, mathematics, and technology. You can learn about education grant opportunities for North Carolina schools and teachers at www.bwfund.org. Radio in Vivo is also underwritten by Chapel Hill Eye Care located at 235 South Elliott Road in Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill Eye Care provides comprehensive eye care to people of all ages. Healthy eyes for a lifetime. Chapel Hill Eye Care, 919-968-4774. WCOM and Radio and Vivo thank these terrific underwriters for their support. Cystic fibrosis is a devastating genetic disorder known to adversely affect quality of life and life expectancy in those unfortunate enough to have it. For a long, long time, there was little progress in improving outcomes. But now all of that has changed. And perhaps for the very first time, there is real hope for a majority of cystic fibrosis patients. On this edition of Radio In Vivo, we will meet a local scientist who has long been on the cutting edge of cystic fibrosis research and treatment. He is a clinician, a research scientist, and an administrator. Scott Donaldson is a professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary Diseases and Critical Care Medicine at UNC Chapel Hill. He is also Associate Director of the Marsico Clinical and Translational Research Center, Director of the Cystic Fibrosis Clinical Translational Corps, and Director of the UNC Adult CF Care Center. He leads a multidisciplinary team that cares for more than 250 adults with cystic fibrosis. Dr. Scott Donaldson, welcome to Radio In Vivo. Thanks so much for having me. Scott, let's start our conversation with what I assume will be an easy one for you. Uh, Tell us exactly what is cystic fibrosis. Right. So cystic fibrosis, or CF, is a genetic disease. And so uh, this this means it's a disease that patients are born with. And it's uh, the result of mutations in one single gene that we call CFTR, or cystic fibrosis transmembrane regulator. And so when these mutations affect the gene, that means the protein that's coded for by that gene doesn't work well, and that causes all the downstream manifestations of CF in multiple organ systems. So um, 
there there are mutations, as you say, that that really cause the the actual clinical disease, yeah. uh, and there is almost what two thousand of those mutations. Yeah, there's uh, been about two thousand different changes in the gene. Not every single one of them might go on to cause disease. So there's some un- uh, lack of clarity in that regard, but there are certainly several hundred clear mutations that cause disease, probably at least 350 or so. So mm-hmm. it's a, a complicated uh, issue. Uh, in different populations, you'll see different changes in the gene. And then we have to figure out if that change in the, the, disease, in the gene causes disease. Uh, but there are many, many different mutations uh, in that one gene. So there are some mutations that actually do not translate into disease. That's right. And then we might not call them a mutation, but just a change. I see. Okay. And is it possible to, for an individual simply to be a carrier? Absolutely. And, uh, and that's how people with CF get the disease. That It's the result of two carriers having a baby and passing on that abnormal copy of the gene to the baby. So... To have the disease, you need two abnormal copies, which, because this is what we call an, a recessive uh, disorder, and by definition, each of the parents was a carrier, and I, they they would mm-hmm. be asymptomatic. They don't know they're a carrier. I see. Now, is there is there a newborn screening for the disease? Yeah. So that's really been uh, something that's evolved over time. Uh, now in the U.S., every state does do newborn screening for CF, but that took some time to uh, to come to fruition. And uh, across the world, uh, different countries do newborn screening. Uh, some don't, uh, and they do it in different ways. So it's, uh, again, a, a little complicated. Each state makes their own rules, but we do do universal newborn screening for CF in the U.S. now. Now, will newborn screening detect um, if if an infant is simply a carrier? Yes, oftentimes it will, and it, it depends on how you do the newborn screening. So uh, some states uh, use a combination of genetic testing, tip, often looking for just the most common mutation, so one of the hundreds possible mutations, sure. along with a biochemical test that reflects the pancreas actually being damaged. So the mixture of those two is looked at, and... Uh, and based on the results, we'll go on to do I need, does this baby need further testing to see if they indeed have CF or not? So mm-hmm. it's a screening test. You'll have many, many positive tests that then need to be whittled down to find the true uh, disease uh, cases. I see. And what is the prevalence in the U.S.? Uh, in the U.S., about 1 in 3,000 births uh, have CF. And it's, it's, it varies based on uh, ethnic backgrounds, ancestry. Uh, CF is most common in northern European ancestry, so certainly we see this much more commonly in Caucasians in the U.S., uh, but it's seen in African Americans and uh, Hispanic populations, so just less commonly. I see. And um, when, is, when is it typically diagnosed? Is it... Is it with newborns, or is it once symptoms start appearing? Yeah, so with newborn screening, most patients are diagnosed in the first few months of life. So a positive newborn screen will lead to additional uh, diagnostic testing, which typically includes a sweat chloride test as the most important test. And so many, many, a vast majority of diagnoses are made in that first few months of life. But uh, even today with newborn screening, we'll miss some patients, or patients will have... Uh, been born before newborn screening was in place, and so we still diagnose adults with CF as well occasionally. Interesting. Um, now, you mentioned the sodium 
Sweat test. Sweat yeah. test. Sweat chloride. Yeah. And and that's a that's a real indicator, isn't it? Because uh, isn't it that people with CF their their sweat is very salty? That's right. So there's a an old uh, proverb from who knows when, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, that if you kiss the brow of an affected baby and it tasted salty, that they were going to soon pass away. And wow. uh, likely they were describing kids with CF before we knew what CF was. Um, back in the fifties, uh, we actually stumbled upon the sweat test, uh, when there was a heat wave in New York city and somebody realized all these kids with CF were coming into the hospital, very dehydrated. And eventually that led to the sweat test where we can stimulate sweat glands in the skin to secrete sweat. We collect it and measure how much sodium and chloride is there. And in a patient with CF, it's very elevated relative to somebody without CF or even a carrier. And this reflects what CFTR does. Interesting. So is is salt actually part of the treatment regimen? It, it can be. So uh, in sort of a complicated way. Um, okay. So to take it maybe just half a step backwards. So the, the gene that we talked about and the protein that it, enco- that it encodes, CFTR, mm-hmm. it's an ion channel. So this is a protein. It sits in, this, in the membrane of cells and it basically regulates how much salt and water moves ac- through the cells. And that's important. Uh, in the lung, this is important because we need to get some salt and water into our secretions so that they're movable and can leave the lung. Uh, through mucociliary clearance. And it's important in other organs as well, in your biliary tract, in your gut, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, it really, the salt and water movement is critical. And then we've uh, taken the approach uh, not too long ago of uh, inhaling salt and water, hypertonic saline we call it, to basically move water into those secretions that wasn't getting enough water because of the CF defect. I see. I, th- I think I've seen some of your studies of Hypertonic saline, right. yeah. yeah. Uh, well, Scott, UNC has long been one of the world's leading centers of research on CF, hasn't it? Yes, it has. Uh, tell us a little bit about that legacy. Yeah, so uh, you know, back in the late 70s, you know, really uh, comes down to Rick Boucher. <laughs> Rick, Rick is still working. He's the uh, research center director still at UNC, going very strong. Uh, and he was recruited uh, as a very young uh, uh, scientist and clinician uh, by Phil Bromberg, the chief at the time. And Rick came, and he, uh, you know, he's been a world's expert and a star in the world of CF. And you know, he's really got a brilliant scientific mind. And he was one of the people who really began to understand what goes wrong in CF. And so by studying the ion transport processes, he really sorted out that there was a couple of different problems, not enough or inability to secrete that chloride in water and too much reabsorption of sodium. And so he was, again, one of a small handful of people that really helped us understand what goes wrong with CF even before we knew what the gene was. And so that's that's passed on, and you know Rick has built uh, really a, a research empire at UNC with hundreds of scientists working in this area. Mm-hmm. And it's really viewed across the world as one of the top uh, research centers for CF. Right. Well, it's it's often been a source of pride, I know for for UNC. Absolutely, it's mm-hmm. you know it's one of those kind of. Uh, Flag, uh, you know, flag-bearing uh, programs that we can look to with pride. One of the reasons for a show like this is to spread the word about yeah. triangle area science. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Uh, well, Scott, before we go into more detail about CF, I don't want to bury the lead here. 
there has been a tremendous breakthrough on in CF therapy. Tell us the story of trikafta, and I'm so happy I didn't say trifecta. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully uh, I won't either. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> you uh, won't be alone. I kept typing that as I was preparing, and I was no, 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 not not trifecta, trikafta, yes, right? Uh, which was approved by the FDA back in uh, October yes. of, of this past year. And it's the first triple combination therapy available to treat patients with the most common CF genetic mutation, which you've already described. You've described this drug as a game changer. Now, I know that folks like you do not use language like that lightly. That's right. So this has been a long story coming. Um, And to really get back to how this came to be, uh, we have to really look at the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. So this is, uh, I can say, probably the best disease foundation, the most successful uh, foundation for any disease out there, I would say. And uh, almost 20 years ago, they made the decision uh, that we were going to invest in a process called high-throughput screening to find molecules that could be turned into drugs to make that CF protein begin to function again. This, I think, was in part related to how difficult it was to fix this genetic disorder with gene therapy and and other uh, approaches such as that. They wanted to really fix the underlying cause of this disease. And so investments were made and progress was made. I won't tell you 20 20-year story in too much detail, but uh, molecules began to be identified that worked on that CF protein to restore its function. Um, We actually had approval of the first of these around 2012, and this was a single drug that worked only in about 5% of patients that had very specific mutations. Uh, The great, uh, you know, the big take-home message from this is this was eye-opening uh, at how effective this approach was. So when you mm-hmm. could flip that switch and get that CF protein begin to function again, we saw how much healthier these patients were. So their weight went up, their lung function improved dramatically and rapidly. They uh, were coming in, into the hospital and having what we called exacerbations much less frequently. And so this was eye-opening. We, I'm, I'm not sure many of us expected how much better the patients would do through this approach. That so op- that was a real proof of concept. This was a proof point. of concept. Exactly right. And that, it, you know, it was life-changing for a small fraction of our patients, but it was a proof of concept that this was the way to go. Mm-hmm. And so that uh, led to, obviously, renewed efforts and ongoing efforts um, to bring that approach to other mutations, and in particular, the most common mutation. So that common mutation is called F508-DEL. It's just mis- It's a protein. It's... Uh, a deletion of one amino acid out of this very large protein. So it's a very small change that has a devastating impact on the protein. It's complicated because that common mutation has a lot of dif- a lot of different problems. So it doesn't fold properly, so that the protein gets stuck inside the cell. It's uh, recognized as an abnormal protein. It gets degraded. Even if you can trick it to get up to the surface of the cell where it needs to be to function, which we can do in the lab uh, easier than in a person. Even when we do that, it doesn't work very well. It doesn't. It, these ion channels, you can uh, think of them as sort of a gate and a fence. They have to open and close to let the ions through. It doesn't work very well. So 
the, the approach of treating this common mutation was going to be more complicated. So, and this uh, eventually led us to realize we need multiple drugs together to get that common mutation to start working. So, uh, around 2016, the first uh, approved drug uh, uh, became available for that common mutation. It was a two-drug combination. One drug to make folding of the protein better, and the other was actually the first drug that was approved to make it begin to open and close. And it worked a little bit. So it was good enough to be approved. Patients Mm -hmm. had fewer exacerbations. Uh, Their lung function went up a little bit, but it wasn't the game changer that that first drug was. And that led to um, the approach of now using three drugs together. So two to really get the folding right and then still that third drug to turn it on once it's in the right place. And that three-drug approach has been spectacular. And now uh, really achieving the same level of results that we saw with that first very small population of markedly restoring CF protein function, which in turn leads to market improvements in health. Do you, do you ever actually use what I call the C word, that this is a, actually a cure for some people? Uh, you know, it's, it's a good question. I would say no. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it does, it gets close. And uh, it, beca- it depends on when we're able to start this drug, I think, in a large degree. Mm-hmm. Um, today, the drug's approved down to age 12. And so you know, this is really the, you know, in my ballpark as an adult pulmonary physician treating adults and adolescents with the disease. And it's, you know, incredibly effective and rewarding to see how much healthier the, these patients are. But many, many of them already have pretty significant uh, structural lung disease that's not going to go away. Mm-hmm. And because of that, uh, those changes in the lung, they will not be cured. They're going to still have chronic infections. They, their pancreas has already been destroyed. That's not coming back. Uh, they're much, much healthier, but it's clearly not a cure. The question is, as uh, what will happen as we move this therapy into younger and younger populations? So the, the usual uh, path is we get down to about age six is the next step, then age two, and then uh, one, six months, et cetera. Yeah. The hope is that if when we can get this drug into the hands of pediatricians treating infants with CF before they have any lung disease, uh, the hope is that this is going to actually prevent the development of lung disease. And so that's, yeah, that's incredible. So since that's what most patients with CF die from and what they suffer with most throughout their lifetime, you know, we would expect those patients to have a normal lifespan. But, you know, it's taking a therapy for life. Sure. Um, babies born with CF do have problems already, though, particularly uh, in the pancreas. And so uh, we even have thoughts of, gosh, can we actually save the pancreas from the ravages of CF by starting before birth? So that's going to, you know, that's, uh, oh. that's uh, something we're thinking about. We'll have to prove that the therapies are obviously safe to a developing baby and to a, a pregnant mom. Uh, but that's, uh, that's the approach. So it's not a cure. It's getting close if we start the drug early enough, but it's not totally a cure yet. So are, are there active trials in, in those uh, children? Yeah, so the, the trials are active uh, down to age six. We'll get the results of them. Uh, the expectation is going to be great. Um, and then the next step would be to move to the, you know, the next age group. How, how is the safety profile looking at this point? Uh, so, you know, our experience is uh, short so far. We have the phase three trials. We have some open label trials that we have experience from. And mm-hmm. we have a three-month uh, real-world experience so far. 
Um, the the major uh, uh, side effects that we've seen so far are things like rash and some uh, abdominal discomfort. Uh, most of these are manageable, and so we can get patients through that, mm-hmm. uh, keep them on the drug, uh, and have them experience the benefits that come with it. Uh, you know, like every drug, there are side effects. We have to monitor for it. I would generally speaking that this this has been quite good. So, um, is it being used uh, by anyone out there off label in very young patients? Uh, no, okay. now that I'm aware of. Uh, Obviously, people would love to. Um, that's, uh, you know, obviously it's not on the label yet. As, uh, <laughs> physicians do many things off-label, obviously, but I, I think uh, it would not be covered by insurance companies, and these are very expensive therapies. Sure. Did you uh, conduct any of the clinical trials for Trikafta? Y- yes, indeed. So, uh, you know, clinical trials today uh, are done in a really a, a big group setting uh, mm-hmm. to make them speedy, efficient, and big enough that we can really interpret the results. And so we have a phenomenal network of clinical trial sites in CF. It's called the Therapeutic Development Network. Currently, there's more than 80 sites in this network. We work together to get it done, and uh, we definitely uh, participated in all of these studies. So um, do you have any individual anecdotal stories that you could share with us? Obviously anonymously, but uh, of course. Uh, any stories uh, that emerged? Oh, yeah, lots of stories. Uh, you know, again, uh, some therapies we test, we have to squint to know if they're working or see a, a response in a population. This is the type of therapy you know it's working in one person. And uh, wow. just a couple stories that come to mind. Uh, actually, a patient who was in one of our trials, uh, she was randomized to placebo or the active drug. Uh, she took the first dose in, the, in our research clinic. Uh, and before she got home, she was texting us. Uh, she had to stop, find a cup, because she was suddenly clearing all this bad stuff, bad, ugly mucus from her lung, and she needed something to cough it out into. This drug really kicks in quickly. Again, it's like flipping a switch wow. on that CFDR yeah. protein. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's it's eye-opening and a bit shocking. Uh, our patients often describe having a, a purge where they, for the first few do- days on drug, they're clearing a lot of that stuff that they just were never able to clear out of their lung before. Uh, I saw somebody in clinic last week, been on the drug about 10 weeks, and uh his lung function has nearly doubled. Uh, he's gained 20 pounds, which has been a chronic struggle. And uh, you know, instead of driving the golf cart onto the green, because he couldn't walk and play golf, he's a phenomenal golfer, but he couldn't walk the golf course or even walk from the, the cart to the green, he can play golf all day uh, and walk up the hill. Uh, so it's really uh, a lot of gratifying, great stories. It must be very rewarding for you at this point. You've been working on this for basically your entire adult life. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure there's been many years where it's been very frustrating in terms of being able to actually help most of your patients. Yeah. Uh, other than in, you know, small increments. Yeah. So it's, it, it must be a great time to be a CF doc. <laughs> it, it's a great time to be a CF doc or a CF researcher for sure. This is, uh, like we said before, it, it's been a game changer and it's a unique experience. Uh, we had foreshadowings from the, you know, the results and the small groups of patients, but with the approval of this drug, we have a drug for 90% of our patients. Uh, so we went from doing really good things for five or 10% to suddenly 90%. Uh, and so that's, 
incredible yeah. uh, just to see the, the better health, the stories from the patients, and uh, just see you know the hope that that brings to the younger kids, obviously, and the future of CF. And the the foundation must be pretty thrilled at this point. Absolutely, yeah, it's it's just an exciting time for all of us. And they they provided most much of the funding, or most or all the funding for the research. So uh, the foundation definitely got this uh, ball rolling, uh, and it, and has invested hundreds of millions of dollars in this. Um, but as you know. Uh, Development of a drug is more in the billion-dollar price tag. Yeah, these days. Um, yeah. And so they got the ball rolling. They got the right players uh, working on this. Uh, you know, Vertex Pharmaceuticals is the the worker, uh, the uh, the company that produces this drug and has really kind of led the field in developing these drugs all along. Mm-hmm. You know, they they've invested you know billions in these programs uh, to bring these patients uh, these these great drugs. So it's it's a it's a win for for everybody. Absolutely. Well, uh, Scott, it seems like Trikafta was approved by the FDA very quickly. Um, Tell us a a little bit about the process and the the story of of that aspect. Yeah. um, Yeah, we... uh we were surprised uh, when it was approved in October. Uh, it, it was approved about three months earlier than we had anticipated. And so every drug that goes to the FDA does have a, a timeline that it has to adhere to. Uh, uh, many drugs get approved within about nine months of going up to the FDA. They go through a very thorough review. Um, but this, this happened in closer to about three months um, uh, from submission of the new drug application. And, and this was uh, really reflective of, A, the FDA wanting to go faster, which is appropriate, um, uh, a very uh, uh, clear package that this drug worked uh, and with a, a good safety proto- profile. Uh, and it's built upon, uh, obviously, the work of the of the related drugs. Uh, so the three drugs that are in Trikafta, uh, two of them were already approved. So really, it was the addition mm-hmm. of a third drug. So okay. we could really build upon uh, a database of safety and efficacy uh, that uh, made this go quickly, which is a great thing. You know, in, in describing the, the three-drug combination uh, and the process, it, it, it seems reminiscent of what went on with HIV-AIDS mm. therapies. Absolutely. Now, uh, Which, of think- course, started right here in the Triangle also. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, we have the, the, same, uh, the same kind of feelings about, uh, you know, I think that's the closest uh, uh, comparison would be the HIV story where we're taking a, a deadly disease and turning it into a chronic illness using combination therapies that patients can take mm-hmm. and just, you know, change lives. What is the uh, regimen for this drug? Is it a once a day oral or? It's twice a day by mouth. Yep. Okay. Um, patients take it with a little bit of food to help them absorb it, given all the uh, particular the GI problems that these patients have mm-hmm. their pancreatic problems. Uh, and so it's quite simple. Uh, our patients are used to incredibly burdensome therapies. So sure. And still have to do this, uh, but you know the the traditional uh, approach to treating CF is with many many inhaled medications using nebulizers, uh, doing mechanical or manual chest physiotherapy to clear mucus out of the lungs, taking enzyme replacements with every meal, taking vitamins, taking oral medications, and you know, if you, you sum it up, uh, the average adult patient 
with CF is probably spending two hours or more a day just working on their disease. And uh, that's incredible to envision doing that for a lifetime. Yeah. Um, the hope is that they might be able to do a little bit less, but we don't have that answer yet. And it probably depends on how healthy they are when they start this drug. And we're actually going to do a, a randomized trial of taking therapies away next to see if it's safe and uh, uh, it has downsides or not. And that would be a huge relief for patients that are spending hours a day on their lung health. Absolutely. Well, as I mentioned to you before we came on the air, I, I know uh, a family that has, has had a... a child and subsequently an adult with the condition and it is very demanding it is it's uh it's you really have to look up to these patients and and their families uh you know the parents who uh you know have a baby a a joyous point in your life and then realize they have cf and then spend you know it's a life-changing event to have a child with cf um the amount of work and dedication that it takes to keep these kids healthy is incredible, um, and so it's so you really uh, admire the the folks that are dealing with this this disease. Indeed, well, Scott, now that Trikafta has been on the market for a few months, um, are you starting to see profound improvements in your own patient population? Oh yeah. Uh, very much so. So I'll, I'll correct your intro. We actually have more than 320 patients now in our clinic. Oh, okay. It's just exploding. Old news. Uh, and, uh, you know, we expect 15, 20 years from now, we'll probably have 600 adult patients with CF because of these drugs and improved survival. So this is a, a growth industry, so to speak. Um, but, uh, you know, because of what we knew about this drug before it was approved, we were sort of anxiously waiting for that approval date and preparing for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and once it was approved, we kind of sprung into action. So we added extra clinics on. Uh, we added extra personnel to get the drug in the hands of the patients absolutely as quickly as possible. And uh, within the first month, uh, about 80% of our patients had the drug in hand wow. uh, to mm-hmm. start it. And so we're now sort of seeing them back in the clinic. And uh, and while it's not a universal uh, uh, miracle, uh, it's common. <laughs> sure. So we're seeing our, our patients you know, with huge improvements in lung function, uh, marked improvements in their nutritional status, which is really, really important, and just feeling so much better. I bet. Um, so do you also operate a, d- a disease registry? We do. Uh, and again, so the CF Foundation started this up in the 60s, uh, again, decades decades ahead of uh, other disease uh, areas. So they... This this really great group decided, you know, registry was important. Uh, they started this disease registry, and it has grown and grown and grown and get more in-depth. Uh, and so every CF center in the country enters data at every visit for every patient, and it gives us this incredibly rich uh, database that helps us learn about the disease outcomes and how, how really how best to uh, take care of patients. It'll be interesting to to query that database in about a year or so. Absolutely, and see see this profound change. Absolutely, it's going to be it's going to be remarkable. So we get a, a detailed report every single year, and it's going to be it's going to be different nice. <laughs> in a good way. Well, um, what about the other ten percent? Yeah, uh, the the folks that this drug does not help. Uh, what what might be in the pipeline uh, for them? Yeah, I, I have to tell you, when the drug was approved, you know, I, we knew it was coming. I had not only a sense of you know joy for the patients who would be getting the, 
the drug. Uh, I actually had a lot of anxiety <laughs> for the patients who were not able to get the drug. And actually, I didn't have the feeling, and most people did not have the feeling that, oh, gosh, we, we're there. We can relax. Uh, it's actually, I think, in the community, a really renewed uh, sense of energy uh, and uh, uh, drive to get therapies for that other 10%. Um, now, the re- reason why this drug doesn't work for them is because they have no CFDR protein made. And so that's the difference. So this drug works if you, with the common mutation. You have a protein you can fix. Mm-hmm. If you have no CFDR protein, uh, there's nothing we can do uh, uh, to just make it work better. So we have to get protein made. And there are different flavors of this problem. Um, and the approach, uh, the future approach will differ depending on the type of mutation. So the biggest group of patients not making protein have what we call a stop mutation. So it's a change in the DNA that, uh, that says uh, the roadmap stops here, protein isn't made, and so nothing is made. And uh, there are a, a variety of different approaches being made, including these so-called small molecule therapies that you could take by mouth to sort of trick the ribosome, which is part of the protein uh, production mu- machinery, to ignore that abnormal stop codon and make a new protein uh, and other pr- approaches as well. But that's going to be about half the patients that don't have a therapy yet. Um, but there are other approaches that may be uh, applicable to everybody with CF, including people who are uh, on Trichafta. And that would be what, what we sort of group together as nucleic acid therapies. So uh, this would include things like gene therapy is the thing that most of us think about, so replacing mm-hmm. the CFDR gene. Sure. But it would also include approaches uh, uh, such as gene editing. So uh, many people may have heard of things like CRISPR-Cas9 and, uh, uh, in, mm-hmm. the, in uh, the media, a really powerful way of fixing mutations. So that's a, a potential approach. And there Is are that being worked on actively at It's this being point? worked on actively. It's not in clinical trials yet in CF, uh, but it's being worked on very actively. And there are multiple sort of flavors of gene editing. Mm-hmm. Um, another approach would be to actually, uh, rather than replacing the gene, to replace the RNA that comes off the gene. And so and this is, is, this is in uh, clinical trials already with a couple of companies working on this. And so this approach would, be, uh, to, would require delivering that RNA molecule, you, typically in a protein lipid nanoparticle, to the lung. Uh, and that RNA then encodes the protein. So you're getting a normal protein out of that. It would require you know, uh, redosing periodically, maybe weekly, maybe monthly, we don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that would be an approach that would be, again, applicable to anybody, regardless of what your mutation is, including that 10% uh, that don't have uh, protein to be fixed. That sounds like a, an approach that's really being taken in a variety of disorders at this point. Absolutely. Uh, that whole gamut of approaches, really. Uh, yeah. We're starting to see eye diseases treated with gene therapy and gene editing. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, in the oncology field, taking cells out of, a body, out of the body and uh, modulating the immune system, CAR T therapies. Right. Uh, so, yeah, this is a, an, an emerging field, a very important field. And, you know, despite the failures of gene therapy for CF over the decades, I think there's been about 19 different cl- uh, clinical studies that did not work. Yeah. And we're circling back around to that with more knowledge uh, so that we can, again, uh, help that, that last group of patients. Well, that's, that's interesting because, you know, I know that uh, gene therapy 
has been the great hope for uh, for CF, particularly because CF is a single gene mutation, right? Absolutely. Uh, you know, that's, I remember uh, when the gene was cloned. Uh, I was actually at Michigan at the time, and uh, Francis Collins' lab is the ones that did it. I was right. working, right. previously was working in the lab next to him. Uh, no kidding. Wow. It was, yeah, that was certainly why. The Part Francis of why. Francis Collins, <laughs> director of NIH. That's right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the hope was, oh, we have the gene. In five years, we'll have it cured. Right. Yeah, we'll have gene right. therapy working. And gene therapy in the lung is very difficult. Uh, you not only need to get the uh, the DNA in there. Well, you need the DNA. You got to get it through all the barriers of the lung, which is designed to keep stuff out of it. Sure. <laughs> uh, you have to get through the mucus. You got to get into the cell. You got to get it uh, uh, then expressed within the cell. So there are a lot of steps. You are listening to Radio In Vivo, and today I am speaking with UNC's Dr. Scott Donaldson about cystic fibrosis and a new golden age in cystic fibrosis treatment. Scott, at this point, I'd like to zoom out just a bit, and in the time we have left. Talk a little more generally about CF and the programs that you oversee. Um, I know we've covered the pharmacologic approach, uh, but other than that, what is the current standard of care for CF? Uh, yeah, so uh, you know, patients with CF, uh, some of the keys to success for patients to do well uh, really requires very close monitoring. Uh, Early in life, it may be every month that they're uh, going in to see the pediatrician to make sure the baby is growing well, which is one of the really a key early events in life. Uh, if, patient, if these babies don't grow well, their lung function tends not to be as good a few years later. Sure. Uh, as time goes on uh, and uh, we get into adolescence and adulthood, the typical regimen is seen coming uh, uh, to the pulmonologist in the, uh, every three months. Uh, so while they're there, we measure their lung function. We assess the microbiology in their secretions since these patients have a really a plethora of different uh, organisms that uh, they're infected with that cause the progressive lung disease. We check their nutritional status. We monitor for CF-related liver disease. Almost half of adults uh, with CF are actually on insulin with diabetes because of the pancreatic problem. So we uh, work together with our endocrinology colleagues to uh, take care of their diabetes. They have uh, almost universally have significant sinus disease. We work together with ear, nose, and throat uh, surgeons to take care of that. So it's really a complex multi-organ disease, lots of complications that can occur. And so we work together as a team with multiple specialists. Uh, within the CF team itself uh, is a spectacular uh, number of people. Uh, for the small group of patients we take care of, we have two uh, dedicated nurses. We have two uh, uh, dietitians. We have two pharmacists. We have respiratory therapists. We have uh, incredibly talented social workers who do therapy with patients because of the mental health ramifications of being born with this chronic lethal disease. Uh, so it's it's a, t a huge team effort, uh, which makes it fun, uh, working mm -hmm. with a team of dedicated people that are really focused and devoted to these patients. Um, and uh, so that it's, it's complicated and complex. So has the typical life expectancy for CF patients uh, increased in recent years? 
Uh, where where does that stand today, and where do you see it going? Right, uh, it absolutely has uh, improved really steadily over the decades. Um, so if you map it out, we typically uh, talk about predicted survival, and what that means is how old will a baby born today be expected to live? Um, uh, in the you know, I came into CF in the early '90s. At that time, uh, patients uh, would be expected to live to be late 20s, early 30s. Um, over my 26 years or so of uh, working in CF today, uh, uh, before Trikafta, mm-hmm. today uh, a baby born would be expected in the U.S. to live to be about 47. So we've added about 17 years of life over the last 25 years, so almost a year per year. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. So incredibly uh, steady uh, uh, improvement in survival. So that's incredible. Sure. We, we don't yet know how Trikafta is going to change that, but we obviously expect that that's going to have a very significant effect with a very steep uptick uh, over the next years uh, that we see in that survival curve. So you know, the hope is patients with CF soon are going to have normal lifespans. Well, that's that's very exciting. It must be very rewarding to contemplate that too. It, it is. I mean, uh, you know, we're really lucky when we take care of p- patients with CF because it's a really close longitudinal relationship. So I, I have patients that I've been taking care of since 1993. So I see them, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight times a year. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you. Uh, you hear about their weddings and their graduations and their kids, uh, and so you're part of their life and vice versa. Uh, and you see that how these improvements are impacting them. And, uh, you know, it's, it can be a challenge also. Uh, their mindset is now needing a change as well. Uh, many patients were told when they were born that they were going to die uh, early in life. Yeah. And when you're told that... You know, you don't invest in your 401k, and you don't plan on going to college, perhaps. Um, some do, but many did not. Uh, you know, a lot of young people having a lot of risky behaviors uh, because, guess what? I'm not going to live very long. And yeah. so now there's sort of an evolution that's happening of patients going, gee, I really need to think about the future. And that can be hard. Uh, that can be really stressful for some people who are now, you know, say, 25 didn't plan on living many more decades or years, uh, who are suddenly have to say, gosh, th- this may all change. I'm actually going to be around for I'm a gonna while. Be, I'm <laughs> going to be around, and I need to plan for that and uh, maybe change how I live my life. Uh, Get that 401k after. Yeah, all, huh? <laughs> that's right. Uh, well, Scott, what is, what is the current state of, of diagnostics mm-hmm. in CF? Uh, you know, the, the, we talked about the sweat test earlier. That still is the gold standard standard of diagnosing CF. Um, and so that's a important part in, uh, in every diagnostic workup. Um, there, there is a group of patients, however, that fall into sort of a gray zone. So a sweat chloride over 60 is typically diagnostic of CF. Under 40 is normal, but you know, there are a, a number of patients in that sort of 40 to 60 gray zone or even below 40 who won't wind up having CF. And so, uh, the, uh, now the ability to identify the mutations themselves has really uh, uh, taken on a very key role. You know, initially it was looking for a, you know, a handful or 20 of the most common mutations, which is obviously useful but not foolproof given that there are hundreds and hundreds of mutations. Mm-hmm. Uh, over the last several years, uh, 
full sequencing of the gene. It's become very um, much more affordable and practical and sort of a standard part of what we do and uh, working up those patients who uh, may or may not have CF. Um, we're not certain. So we'll get their whole CFDR gene sequenced, uh, and that identifies about 99% of the mutations. And so uh, the sweat chloride is still the standard, but the genetic approach uh, has become more and more important. And uh, that has become routine, the the sequencing? The sequencing has become very routine. You know, there are uh, several companies that do send the blood out. We get a report back in a couple of weeks. It's, uh, you know, it's the new age. <laughs> yeah, really? Because it's not too too long in the past to remember when, you know, it was thousands upon thousands of dollars absolutely. to get a gene sequence. Not very yeah. long ago. You're absolutely right. And you, know, you think even further back how much work that was. I mean, one sure. patient may take you know, days and weeks to get it done or even more. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you know, the technology is cheap, fast, uh, and effective. Well, with the, those types of changes, uh, Scott, is, is personalized medicine uh, something we will see for CF patients at some point, or is it already here? Well, and to some degree, it's here. Um, but uh, when we think about personalized medicine, uh, we, uh, there's a lot still to be done. Uh, again, so we have a great therapy for the common mutation, and that does, and to some degree, take care of 90% of the patients. But we also have hundreds of other mutations most of these mutations are actually carried by fewer than five or six people in the world. Wow. And so in thinking about how do I get a therapy for this very tiny group of patients, uh, you clearly can't conduct a clinical trial in five people and get a result and get a drug approved. Yeah. Um, and so personalized medicine has to be part of the equation. It's something that we're very focused on. And uh, here at UNC, I have great collaborators that I work with, uh, Martina Gensch being one, for example, who really is developing assays uh, that can be done outside of the body using tissues from the patient. And so in this way, we can take that individual patient's cells, either from the nose or actually through our rectal biopsy, bring it to Martina and other colleagues uh, where it can be studied in the lab, where we can directly look at uh, CFDR function and other aspects of the biology and begin to say, gosh, is drug A the best approach for this patient or a combination of A, B, and C? Potentially, what's the dose um, to, to get to that point? So as we accumulate more and more therapeutic options and more drugs in the toolkit, we can think about uh, personalizing their use in a given patient. Obviously, we then have to sort of validate that what we see in the lab translates into what we see in the person. But that, you know, Mm -hmm. you can think about what we call N of 1 trials. So you have uh, lab data and then test it in that one patient to see how it worked and uh, to get to answers. And so that's uh, what we're thinking about. In Europe, there's a big initiative for this, uh, again, looking at, uh, uh, at patients with more rare mutations using what's called the organoid system, so uh, rectal cells grown in uh, sort of like a ball in a sphere, expose it to different drugs and see how that sphere swells, uh, which happens when CFDR is activated. So it's now pumping that salt and water inside the, the balloon and the balloon swells. So uh, you know, we're going to learn a lot from that work as well. I see. So um, what are the top priorities in CF research hmm. at this point? What are the biggest gaps? Yeah, I, I think the biggest gaps, and you know, the foundation has really laid out a nice uh, you know, five-year plan uh, uh, about this. But I think 
clearly uh, there are lots of there are different priorities, and uh, you know the, the take-home message is nobody's being left behind here. Um, it's full steam ahead, uh, both for patients who don't have access to Trikafta for whatever reason, but also for the patients who get Trikafta and still have significant disease to, to deal with. Uh, I would say the number one approach, though, is really focused on that 10% of patients who don't have protein uh, to modulate. And so this is where the investment is being made to how can we deliver drugs effectively into those airway cells, getting by all the barriers that are in front of us, and then uh, deliver that therapy in the cell. And then whether it be gene editing, RNA delivery, gene therapy, et cetera, getting those therapies to work. And to get there, um, there are a lot of challenges. Um, these are small groups of patients still. Again, you know, most of the patients are not in that group. So we're going to have to devise ways of doing clinical trials in small numbers of patients. And to do that successfully, it's going to be required to have what we call outcome measures or endpoints in trials that are meaningful and give us that clue that things are working or not. And uh, so that's really uh, where we're very actively working. Uh, at UNC, we're part of that um, developing uh, tests, for example, where we can use MRI scans to look to see how the lung is ventilated. And we, th- we know that's a very sensitive uh, test mm-hmm. to know, uh, to detect lung disease. And that may be a really useful way to see if one of these new therapies is working or not. And again, a very small number of patients, which is the key. Uh, so uh, better outcome measures, better uh, delivery means of getting these therapies into the lung and getting the right therapies developed. Uh, so it's a, a huge effort. Excellent. Um, what about uh, tests to predict uh, the impact of new CF medications? Because I understand that that's a gap that you are particularly interested in. Yeah. Um, so we do have, um, you know, there's, there's a history behind this of predicting clinical responses um, uh, to drugs. Um, and the great news for the, the CFTR modulator therapies that we've been talking about is the in vitro tests in pr- what are called primary bronchial epithelial cells, they actually were very predictive, which is a little unusual in medicine, <laughs> that we can do something in the lab and know how it's ultimately going to work in a patient. So that's worked out very well. Um, but, uh, but we need other, uh, in vivo tests as well. And so, you know, uh, our group, which includes, uh, really close collaborators, um, are working on a lot of imaging endpoints, uh, to understand how, how things are working in the lung. Uh, so one, uh, one area that we're working closely on is actually measuring the rate of mucus clearance that comes out of the lung. We know that these CFTR therapies and many other therapies as well are really directed at getting mucus clearance to to be restored. And so uh, working in particular with uh, Bill Bennett and Kirby Zeman, who I know you know as well. Yes, um, indeed. Uh, we've been for decades now uh, kind of perfecting these techniques and applying it to clinical trials, to new drugs. And it's been actually uh, quite predictive uh, of knowing whether a drug is going to work or not. We haven't taken it to the point to know whether in an individual patient uh, um, a particular drug is going to be great or not great. Uh, but that's you know certainly something to look forward to. So we're taking this older technique, making it better and better. We're actually trying to disseminate disseminate it to more and more sites so we can work together to make these trials go more rapidly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we're currently up to four sites in the U.S. We uh, actually started up three sites in Europe. 
and are looking to expand that even further in the U.S. very soon uh, to, again, use this tool uh, for drug development. Another approach that uh, we're very invested in uh, has been through a collaboration with uh, uh, Cecil Charles, who's a radiology researcher at Duke. So actually, UNC and Duke can work together. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> so Cecil has been really a pioneer in a field called uh, uh, fluorine imaging using MRI. So the, the idea is uh, patients can inhale uh, a gas. It's inert, so it doesn't get absorbed, doesn't affect the patient. But we can see that gas with an MRI uh, through lots of special uh, tools uh, 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 tacked onto the MRI. Uh, and so we can see ventilation. Uh, and so this has been really exciting. We've really been appreciative of the collaboration and uh, you know, uh, at UNC and in radiology, Ray Lee, Jen Goralski, and pulmonary medicine have really, we've all been working together to make this a reality. We've actually just recently completed uh, a study that showed that this uh, test is actually very sensitive to detect lung disease uh, in patients with CF, even those who, through traditional methods, have normal lung function. So we can see disease before the usual tests we use in the clinic are able to see disease. And so the goal then is to take those tests and move them into younger and younger populations, which uh, is tricky um, to think about a baby or a, a toddler in an MRI uh, magnet, having them hold still and be able to get yeah. the data you need out of it. So there are uh, lots of devel- development that still needs to happen, but we think it's really exciting. It's going to be one of those tools that will be really best positioned for testing therapies in very young children who typically have very, very mild disease. So it's hard to see an effect of a drug. So we think it's an important uh, part of the, the work ahead. And when uh, what's the outlook for, for that uh, proliferating out to the clinic? Uh, so we're doing the trials now. Uh, it, uh, I don't foresee it being a, a tool that everybody uses in the clinic per se, um, but we're actively doing multiple trials. So it's, you know, it's part of the research. Um, we actually have an active trial that we're about to complete seeing the effect of trikafta on these endpoints, uh, both mucociliary clearance and the F19 MRI scan. So we're excited to, to really, now we have a great therapy. We're going to learn from that using that therapy to see how it affects the endpoints and then move those endpoints into you know the next therapy. It's like Christmas in July for you. Isn't it, it is. <laughs> it is. Uh, you know, uh, feel pretty lucky. <laughs> well, Scott, tell us a little bit about the uh, UNC Adult CF Center which you direct. So uh, our center, uh, again, was one of the first adult centers. You know, CF obviously has been traditionally a pediatric disease, uh, and most of the caregivers were pediatricians. And uh, in uh, the right around 1980, um, uh, adult pulmonologists at UNC, Jimmy and Kaskis, Mike Knowles in particular, really uh, invested in uh, uh, developing a clinical center uh, to piggyback upon the research that Rick Boucher brought for CF Research. So really, you know, it's now going back 40 years, uh, this clinical center uh, was developed. And uh, uh, as the progress in CF uh, has been made, we knew that we really needed to do a better job in how we deliver care to these patients using the multidisciplinary team that I mentioned previously. And so in 98, we actually started really the first dedicated multidisciplinary clinic uh, in, in our adult population. And this was in collaboration with a spectacular nurse, Kathy Honecker, who, who uh, retired not too long ago, but who was, you know, 
incredibly devoted to these patients, had a research background, and we got together, started this clinic, uh, and really has, uh, we've focused incredibly hard on delivering the best care possible uh, to the patients. And it's, you know, it's been a constant state of evolution uh, to bringing all the right uh, players into the room, into the patient's room to take care of them. Uh, you know, we, uh, you know, we uh, meet every week to figure out how to make things better. So we, we meet for an hour every week. We uh, outline projects of what can we do that will have an impact on the patients, uh, whether it be uh, making sure they have food in the refrigerator, uh, because we know a lot of North Carolinians uh, suffer with food insecurity, uh, whether it be making sure they get to clinic and don't sort of disappear into the woodwork. Um, so just many, many projects that we constantly are working on to deliver the best care that we can. Uh, and so that's a big part of our clinical center. And uh, as I mentioned before, the number of patients we care for continues to increase. Um, we're up to more than 320 plus an additional 50 who have received lung transplants. Uh, so we're a large center. Um, and, uh, yeah, and we uh, work really closely with our research, uh, the basic research colleagues, to really hand-in-hand hand move, the, move the science forward and move the care forward. Wonderful. Well, Scott, it's been a really exciting time for the CF community, and uh, I want to thank you for sharing all of the good news with Radio En Vivo today. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. We've got some great guests lined up in the coming weeks here on Radio En Vivo. You can check the website, radioenvivo.net or our Facebook site for our lineup of upcoming shows. Join us again next time for Radio on Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community, right here on volunteer-powered WCOM-FM, Carborough and Chapel Hill. And if you enjoy this show, we ask that you support the station by visiting our website, wcomfm.org, and making a secure online contribution by clicking the Donate Now button. We rely on listener support to keep your voice in the community on the air. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time.